back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am with a blast from the past, <laughs> as I've invited my friend Blake PT to come back. And if you don't recognize that name, it's because he really doesn't podcast anymore. And he was last on with me uh, in episode number 192, which came out on March 21st of 2015. So seven years ago, we had a chance to talk. and Wow. And, and now we're getting a chance to talk again. Welcome aboard, Blake. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very, very happy to be back. You know, it's, it's. I, I can't believe it has been seven years since we did that episode. Uh, it's, it's been five since my last podcast of, of our show. Um, and it's, and it's been uh, completely because I'm a dad now, and it's very, very difficult to arrange a recording time with a, a first a baby, now then a hyperactive toddler, and now a hyperactive four year old. Uh, it's, it's just, it's. He's the best thing in the world, but it's the timing that has kept me from uh, from getting back on the microphone. So it's nice that we managed to, to work this out and I could join you today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you could. And, you know, with any luck, if we I'm assuming we're going to both enjoy this. And with any, <laughs> with any luck before too, too long, we'll do this, uh, you know, again. Uh, Absolutely. But we'll see how that goes. And I'll, I'll tell you the only difference between a hyperactive four and a half year old and a hyperactive teenager and a hyperactive early 20s uh, is that when they're four and a half, they accept that you know everything. <laughs> and when they're the other ages, they accept that you know nothing. But they know well, everything. I, I, I am a high school teacher, so I'm aware of the teenage attitude as well. Yeah, I know what you mean. So, yes, uh it's, it's always always a pleasure to hear about how I don't know anything about life. <laughs> but just the same. Uh, have, have you been uh, active in the comic world since uh, we last spoke? Um, as I, I've been reading a lot. Uh, not quite as much as I used to. I still read a good bit. Uh, but I've been reading more and more of the, uh, the older stuff as well, you know, because it's especially with stuff like, you know, Marvel Unlimited and DC Infinity. It's, it's so easy to, to get that old stuff now. Uh, that it's been easy to you know jump in and do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and I, well, I, I still enjoy the older stuff more than I enjoy the new stuff anyway. Uh, yeah, like, I understand. With with the newer stuff, I find it's it's I'm becoming more choosy. You know, like Legion of Superheroes. I when I from what the time I started reading comics, I did not miss an issue of Legion of Superheroes until uh, earlier this year. <laughs> it's mm. like okay i this is not for me right now maybe someday it will be again but who knows there comes a point where i think you know most of us have you know i think most comic collectors not necessarily comic fans but comic collectors mm -hmm. have kind of a level of ocd about the collecting uh and i don't necessarily mean that as an insult or a compliment it's just it is <laughs> what it is uh but i think we become very much completists Mm -hmm. uh, and we become afraid to miss out on things. We we get the we get the comic book FOMO, uh, where where you know where even when the run starts to lose its pizzazz, we start mm -hmm. to say, well, I still need it because I have a run that starts at this issue and goes consecutive to this, and I'm not going to break that streak. Absolutely. Uh, and and there yeah. there is a point where some of us, I don't think all of us, but some of us just finally are able to break that, and and then you could be more picky. You know, it's having the access to the digital books has helped me break that in a lot of cases, like uh, without 
without trashing any books out there except for Legion, which I've already done, um, there's a few books, both from Marvel and DC, which like, well, this isn't terrible, but is it really worth the $4 a month if I can wait a few months and just read it on the app? And that's made it a lot easier to, to back off from certain things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it's I, I was just having a conversation with a friend today and it wasn't about comics, but just about the things that we build up in our houses over the years mm -hmm. and talk thinking about, you know, which is something we have talked about on the show in the past. Just like when we're gone one day, does anybody want this stuff? It's the stuff that we've amassed over our lives. And what, at what point do you say, you know what, I got to get rid of this because it's just going to be a burden on people. And my thought process as we were talking about it was as long as you're still enjoying it, mm -hmm. you should keep doing it and you should keep it. And, you know, I feel bad that somebody's got to get rid of things or, you know, maybe they don't want it. Maybe they do. And, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't sit here and pat myself on the back for that. But I feel like if you get rid of all these things that you that you love doing and you just stop it's like you're sitting waiting to die <laughs> i mean i know that's morbid and it's it's strong but it's like if you love doing it why not just keep on doing it i i exactly i know exactly what you mean yeah and i you know i still enjoy i don't buy new books i haven't bought new books in quite some time but i still enjoy collecting the old books and i still enjoy mm -hmm. going to the comic book stores and going through the racks and picking out the ones that i need to you know, to fill in my runs a little bit. Uh, and one day, you know, when I'm gone, my my wife or my children or who knows if I'm lucky enough, my grandchildren uh, are going to say, what the hell are we going to do with all these comics? <laughs> but, you know, and it, maybe I'll have lost interest in them by then and move them out. But for now, I say, you know what? Deal with it, guys. I've always thought of myself more as a reader than a collector. Granted, I do have a ridiculous collection, but... But it's I've never been the kind of person who I have to get like an absolutely pristine copy and I'm going to send it off to get slabbed and and all that. It's I, I I get the stuff that I like and the stuff that I want to read more so than anything else. Yeah, and eventually when I was able to crack that uh, that completest attitude, I became <laughs> much more similar in that regard. And yeah. and I'm willing to you know I do want to fill out certain collections. I do feel still you know like. I've talked about it on the show. What I ended up doing was uh, I kind of picked an endpoint on a lot of series. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I believe I'm trying to think of one in particular. I believe on the Avengers, uh, I decided issue 300 ends it as far as I'm concerned. I don't need anything past 300. And it's arbitrary. I'm not trying to yeah. say that it makes a lot of, you know, a lot of sense as to why I picked certain numbers. But I decided, you know, anything like any holes in my run that I could fill from issue one to issue 300, I'm happy to do, especially if I can do it at a reasonable price. But beyond that, anything I would pick up if somebody handed me a copy of it, as far as I'm concerned, that's a reader copy and I'll read it and I'll either give it away to somebody or I'll throw it on eBay or I'll, you know, it, it's not going to go into my my comic book closet that I've managed to have in our house now uh, <laughs> because I had to just kind of put some limits on it. And I took all the issues I had that were not in that arbitrary, you know, run of each series that I decided to keep hold on to. And I, you know, I've been selling some on eBay and I traded some in at the comic store for store credit. And, uh, you know, I just feel like it just gets to a point where you need to just realize this is what I want to collect. And you have, you have to focus it a little bit. Yeah, I see that. Absolutely. 
So that, that's that's the way mine has gone. And I still enjoy mm-hmm. going to the comic shows when I can. And I still enjoy sh- going by the shops and mm-hmm. diving into the uh, the back issue bins. But yeah. but a lot of the shops now don't even have back issue bins that I'm interested in because a lot of the back issue bins now are like comics that came out in the last five years. And uh, I know. And, and that yeah. has no interest to me at all. Uh, so, you know, this, but, you know, I, I, I have to say my wife is an enabler. Uh <laughs> We, we had taken a trip to Connecticut like two years ago, and I saw there was a comic book store located, you know, somewhere that wasn't too far off the road from where we went. So I said, you know, I'd like to stop here. And she was, you know, she was fine with that. So we stopped, and I'm looking through, and I'm picking out some books. And uh, she she ended up like, you know, well, why don't you pick out more? Go ahead, pick out more. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, I don't want this one, you know, because she was like, this one's on your want list. I was like, yeah, but the price is too high. I don't want it at that price. I want it at a bargain price or I don't want it at all. So she she didn't quite get that totally. But then when we left the uh when we left the the store, she actually went on her phone and looked and said, "Oh, there's another store like 2 miles from here. Why don't we go there?" <laughs> so I I I have to consider myself uh very lucky that that I have a wife who really has no interest in comics but is happy to uh you know, to indulge me. My my wife is is very similar with the indulging part. Just just a few weeks ago, there was a store, uh, a local store where they were closing one of their locations, and having a you know a, a clearance clear everything out type of sale, and it, it's in a part of part of New Orleans where the, the parking is just ridiculous. I I never went to this store because I could never find a place to park, but they were having it was like a fifty percent off everything in the store sale. I was like, well, I have to at least try. Which store is this? This was uh this is the Ferret Street location of uh, Crescent City Comics. Okay, and we're gonna t- and... We, we do need to talk about that because that's where I went when I was in oh, New Orleans. The, the Ferret Street? Yes. Oh wow, yeah. Well, they're they're gone now. Yes, I know. <laughs> they closed the day after right. I was there. Really? That's that. Then I think we were might have been there the same day, not at the same time, but the same day. That would have um, been wild if I was in there and that, you came walking in. That would have been crazy. Yeah, but I, was and like, I think it was I would have like recognized second... you. Uh, probably. But it was like the second to last to last day, and I was trying to get there, and and we wound up parking like four blocks away, and she she's like just just go, I'll stay here. She stayed in the car with our our son and played with him while I walked the four blocks to the store, so I could dig through those those dollar bins, which thanks to the sale had magically become fifty cent bins, which is even better, you know. Yes. Yeah, so just so. to to kind of complete for anybody listening, uh, my wife and I went and we met another couple that we're friends with in New Orleans. Uh, at, towards the end of March, uh, and uh, I had asked on on Facebook, you know, are there any good stores? And Blake had had mentioned Crescent City Comics, which actually had uh, three locations, two really two and a half locations, two mm-hmm. comic book store locations and a bookstore location. The bookstore is very close to where we were staying, uh, but we wanted to go to the comic store. Of course, uh, of course. And I didn't I didn't know that one of them was closing. I just knew that. The Ferret Street one that you mentioned was closer to where we were. It was a little easier for us to get to. Uh, so we went there. Uh, and it was funny because as we were walking along go, to go to the store, somebody said something like, uh, you know, I, I hope the store hasn't closed or something like that, which we didn't know they were closing. Uh, <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they can close tomorrow as long as they're open today. <laughs> and, and ironically <laughs> enough, they did close tomorrow. Yeah. And we got there, and the books were half price, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I probably bought about 
you know, nothing, nothing too uh, out there. But I probably bought about twenty books while I was there from the dollar bin. So I got twenty books for ten bucks. Yeah, uh, and that's you know that's that's a price I can live with very easily. And, oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know they had some other stuff. They had some T-shirts that were on sale, and they had a lot of graphic novels and you know collectors collections and stuff that I, I was interested in. But we we did, we ended up with an unintended uh, time limit because uh, at one point I said, okay, if you call for a cab now, I'll keep looking, and then when the cab comes, we'll leave. And the cab came so much quicker than I expected. So it did cut my, my my bin diving a little bit. But I'm still happy to have gotten to a comic book store in New Orleans just the same. I'm so glad you made it, yeah. Yeah, it's a, and just, you know, as Blake and I were talking before we went on, uh, New Orleans was, it was a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, but for anybody who's thinking of going there as a visitor, uh, it is definitely worth seeing if nothing else from a historical point of view and from a eating point of view the food is spectacular <laughs> oh yeah and, yeah. and the history ourselves. the history is something else i mean uh it was it was interesting because we did we did a tour of new orleans you know a bus tour and they brought us all around and then uh at the end of the tour he said oh this is the world war ii museum which i had a friend who told me you have to see the world war ii museum it's spectacular mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, yeah. But my wife and the other wife did not want to go to the World War II oh, Museum. Oh, no. <laughs> but the bus driver said, there's the World War II Museum, and right now we're just taking you back to your hotel. So anybody who wants to go to the World War II Museum, you could just get off the bus now, and you're not going to miss any of the tour. And me and my buddy got off, and we spent, I don't know, probably about three and a half to four hours there, which was not even enough time to really take it in. We could have easily spent an entire day there. It was fascinating. It was spectacular, and I loved it. Yeah, it's it's been a few years since I've been, and I really want to go back because they've opened up some new exhibits. Uh, I, I know there's stuff there I haven't seen. And I'm, I'm anxious to get back there. My biggest criticism of it, <laughs> and this is if you want to talk about nitpicking, my biggest criticism is as we walked through and made our way through all the exhibits, we came upon the surrender of Japan before, or excuse me, the bombing of Japan before the surrender of Germany. Uh, so, so we were a little out of sequence, and that, that, <laughs> that's my biggest criticism I had of it. I mean, the exhibits are just, you know, great. A uh, yes. lot of vintage films playing and documentaries and yeah. uh, it, it's that's that's the thing that'll screw up your day because you want to sit there and watch them all and then you don't have time to go and look at everything else. Yeah, it, that was that was wonderful. And then you know we did we w did a lot of the walking tours and we did manage to spend one afternoon at Harris to see if I could lose some money. <laughs> so it was it was overall it was a very enjoyable trip. Was, uh, I'm very glad to hear that, sir. Yes, and uh, you know I. I I don't know that we'll be coming back anytime soon, to be fair, but I definitely enjoyed it. And, you know, the only thing that would have improved it is if when I was in, in Crescent City, if you had come walking in and, and I recognized <laughs> you, that would have just been great. That would have been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, overall, I did, you know, like I said, I did appreciate the trip. And uh, when we talked about coming on today, uh, I said, hey, how about we do two New Orleans based comic books? And uh, Blake was nice enough to indulge me in that. Uh, so we, we each picked one. And we're going to have, I think, some interesting opinions on these books. Uh, but as the guest, 
I give you the option if you'd like to go first and go over your book or you'd like to go over mine. Uh, let's let's go over yours first. Uh, I, I, I definitely have opinions on that one, but I'm anxious to hear what you thought of it. Okay, now I'm going to, once again, and I, I think, you know, regular listeners kind of know my history in that uh, I had started collecting in the early 1970s. Uh, and then in the mid-80s, around 1986 or so, I decided I was too old to collect comic books anymore, and I stopped. And at the time of the death of Superman, which I think is 1993? Uh, uh, 92-93, somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, that was when I got kind of hooked back in and decided I wasn't mm -hmm. too old anymore. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the book I picked actually came out during the time when I was not collecting. Uh, and I don't know if I ever read it before now, but what I did was I said, hey, Gambit's a New Orleans character, for better or worse, uh, and when what what's his first appearance? And his first appearance was in X-Men 266, which is cover dated August of 1990, and I figured, well, I might as well go for that, and uh, again, we'll talk a little bit about our thoughts about it in a moment, but I'm going to give you the synopsis that I'm stealing from the Marvel Wiki. Uh, because it's short, it's sweet, and it kind of covers it. And the, oh, well, I didn't mention the story is written by Chris Claremont. It's penciled by Mike Collins, inked by Joseph Rubenstein, colored by Brad Venkata, lettered by Pat Brusso and Tom Orzakowski, and edited by Bob Harris. And the synopsis is that in her attempt to steal back some stolen paintings, Aurora has run right into the Shadow King's trap. She desperately struggles against the attacks of his hounds, and, after hurting the king with her haphazard weather powers, she falls into a pool from which she is rescued by a charismatic young thief who calls himself Gambit, and has mutant powers himself. Gambit almost manages to mesmerize the king's aide, Leon, with his charm, but is attacked by the king himself. Together, though, the two thieves manage to trick their attackers and flee via the roof and Storm's parachute. Later, at the junkyard where Storm is staying, she admits that the Shadow King won't give up, and Gambit is now likely part of his vendetta. Nancy and the Orphan Maker have finally almost located Storm again. Excuse me, Nanny and the Orphan Maker. I apologize. <laughs> Nanny is determined to rescue her before the Shadow King gets Aurora. In Washington, D.C., Val Cooper is sent by the Shadow King to assassinate Mystique, who, courtesy of a letter by Destiny, is already expecting her. However, Mystique doesn't act to stop Val. And that's the synopsis. It's kind of brief, but uh, it kind of covers it because I'm not really up on the subplots that Claremont had going. I've talked in the past about his how his Claremonts were really kind of cool because he's always like lay, you know layering things to come it was back in an era when the comics you know when you could expect somebody to be with the comic long term and they could layer stuff that you're not going to see come to fruition for 20 years uh, you know excuse, not, excuse me not 20 years 20 issues uh, <laughs> but you know it was it was a different era and i i really did appreciate that uh the artwork in the book, I'm kind of working my way around here, but the artwork in the book I, I, is by this guy, Michael Collins, who apparently, I looked him up, he uh, he apparently has a very limited comic, uh, you know, uh, bibliography, uh, or, uh, well, that's fine, <laughs> and uh, 
he, he I think he worked on on movies and TVs, probably doing probably doing uh, storyboarding. Uh, but I do like the artwork in this book. It's it's dark, it's moody, uh, and it it kind of sets the tone. Uh, I'm not totally familiar with why Aurora Aurora is a child in this. She was apparently de-aged at some point, uh, but I don't know how or why. Um, my my knowledge of the Shadow King is limited to the issue in the, I guess the early. 100s when they have a flashback to him fighting Professor Xavier in the uh, astral plane. Uh, so I didn't know he had this power to kind of control people's minds, which they show here. He's definitely a more powerful villain than what I was familiar with. Uh, and then we get to Gambit. And <laughs> I have always thought... And I will never, I don't think I'll ever be swayed from this unless somebody who lives in New Orleans tells me otherwise. I have always thought that his uh, comic book accent and comic book choice of words was kind of silly. Uh, I will not tell you otherwise. And, and, sir. and, and very, very put on, like, you know, by, by people who, it's, it's like, you know, very often you'd, can point to it in, in comics when they're doing somebody who's Spanish or somebody who's Italian or Greek or whatever. And they, they overdo the accent and they overdo the, the terminology that they use or when they have a Canadian and every other word out of their mouth is a, uh, mm -hmm. that's the way I've always felt about Gambit. And again, you're not going to dissuade me from that. So I guess, I guess my feeling was accurate. Uh, I know he's supposed to be like mega charming, and I don't really see it. I don't really know. I don't find his character to be all that appealing. I didn't find it all that appealing in the in the cartoon, uh, which is probably where I have the most familiarity with him. Uh, and yet I still enjoyed that cartoon. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't know what Claremont was doing here. He did, in this issue at least, seem more mysterious and and a little, little bit more intriguing than what I got later from him. So I'll give them that. And oh, and I, I thought Nanny was the person, if you remember in X-Men 104, when he, when Magneto trapped the X-Men and he had like kind of a, a robot AI taking care of them and it was called Nanny. Uh, I thought maybe it was the same thing, but apparently it's not. Nanny and the Orphan Maker, I remember because they were using them a lot in X-Factor at the time. And honestly, at, I, I was reading that book more so than the main X-Men book for a long time, just because just of the characters. I, I, I had more of an affinity for like the original X-Men, which is what the original X-Factor was, more so than a lot of the characters that were in, uh, in Claremont's book at the time. So I recognized them. I was like, oh, hey. But I know exactly what you're saying about Gambit. He, he is, it, it's like the, the, if Disney World had, if you went to like Epcot and they had a Cajun country exhibit, it's like he's the stereotype who would be walking around in there. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's supposed to have this whole cool, mysterious guy thing going on, but I don't get cool. He walked. There's one panel in here where he literally says, "You know, Cher, you don't talk like any kid I've ever heard," which is ironic because he doesn't talk like any Cajun I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so, it's just so over the top. What I always felt about Gambit was. He's cool because they tell you he's cool, not because exactly. you ever see him being cool. Yes, yes. There's a lot of tell and not show when it comes to Gambit's uh, charm and, and and cool stature. 
Yeah. I've, I've always felt, and this is the writer in me talking, I don't think that there's any character that is completely worthless. I think if you, you give a, a bad character to a good writer and they can turn it around. I mean, like Gail Simone made Catman interesting when mm-hmm. she started writing Secret Six. True. Gambit, I've read some decent stories with Gambit in it, but I've never read a story that made me fall in love with Gambit. And and it's it's everything that you said. He's he's a stereotype. They they work so hard to convince us that he's cool without actually convincing us that he's cool. And and certainly in this first appearance, I'm just gonna say it. That original costume he was wearing is just hideous. It's I don't this, I don't know that the updates on the costume were any better. I I agree. I agree. Not, I don't I don't disagree with this one being hideous, but I think they've all been hideous. Yeah, I, 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 there's not really an iconic Gambit costume. I guess the closest thing to iconic is the one that he, he had in the cartoon show. But again, there's nothing about it that really jumps out except, wow, this is a guy who really comes from the 90s. <laughs> um, I think it was, I think it was Alex Ross who said that the, the mark of a great superhero costume is if you've never seen him before and all you hear is his name, that's enough for you to pick him out of a lineup. You know, Spider-Man, you know exactly who you're looking at. The Flash, it's got to be the guy with the lightning bolt. But Gambit, there's no image that immediately is going to say Gambit that I can think of. And part of that, I guess, is is the name. It's it's just nothing comes to mind visually. But it also goes down to it's it's nothing that I can really... It's not something I'm going to put on a t-shirt. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> it's it, the the character. It's it, it's it leaves me wanting. Yeah, you know, it, just, it just occurred to me. I'm just going to make sure that my thing is actually recording because I was depending on it to pick up and do that. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good. I would Glad hate, to hear it. I would hate to to tell you. Oh, none of this is on a recording. In fact, I want to click <laughs> record on the. Skype call as well, which I meant to do before we started, because that way I get a back. I do a recording and a backup at the same time. Good, good call. Yeah. Okay, so uh, getting back into this, obviously, I'll just clip that sequence out. Uh, <clears throat> do you were you were you reading the X Men at all at this time when this came out? You know, I've always been in and out with X Men, with X Men proper. Like I said, I was a huge fan of X Factor. X-Men, I would drift in and out over the years, and I still kind of do. And this was in an out period for me. So I didn't read this when it first came out. But I would read issues not long after that where they would have things like the uh, um, the, the Mutant Massacre or Fall of the Mutants, where it would cross over with the books that I was reading. Uh, that's, that's when I would look in on what was going on in X-Men. So I was aware of the character not too long after he came out, but I never... I never felt an attachment to him. So, I mean, Storm in this, uh, yeah. trying to make a judgment call, I'm thinking she looks to be probably physically about mm-hmm. 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, I uh, think that sounds about right. I remember issues at that time period referencing the fact that she had been de-aged, but I don't, I don't remember why or how or when it happened. Okay, so then that, it, that eliminates that, that question. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was definitely something that lasted for a while, uh, but... Uh, darn if I can remember what it caused it. Now, I didn't describe the cover, uh, which I usually do. Uh, it, again, kind of moody. Uh, who is the artist on the cover? i got to take a quick look at that. I didn't see. 
cover is by Andy Kubert and Pat Brousseau. Uh, it shows Gambit, and he's kind of, I guess, got his yeah, he's got his arm around Young Storm, and he's you know helping her. He, I think he's helping her, but it could be her helping him. Uh, as they walk, he's hanging onto a branch. It looks like they're in the bog, you know, like a boggy area, and it says, "Enter the mutant called Gambit." And at this time, I think. And again, I was not collecting at this time, but I think Claremont was coming up with all sorts of, you know, different new, new, and I don't mean the book, new mutants, but new, <laughs> new mutant characters, uh, and seeing which ones of them would stick. Uh, so I, I don't know, you know, at the point when this came out, if this was much heralded or not. Uh, I don't think, uh, again, just from my recollection of the time, I don't think there was a huge deal made out of, oh, this this new character that's going to take the world by storm. But that might have been because, you know, this was 1990. This was you know, before the Internet really started to take off. Uh, and I think it was a lot back then. It's kind of like you're saying you throw stuff at the wall and whatever stuck is what would get run with later on. It would get ramped up. It would get made a bigger thing once they realized that the characters were, were having some sort of longevity or, or starting to gather an audience. Yeah, and I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, I wish I could put my finger on what triggered the popularity of this character. Because while, while you and I are sitting here and saying, oh, you know, I don't see the charisma, I don't see the appeal, uh, he certainly was a popular character at one oh, time. Oh, absolutely. And, I'm, I, and I don't get it either. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure, you know, what, what, the, what the people saw... Or was it something where Marvel just kept putting them out there, putting them out there, and putting them out there? You know, they, I, I'm trying to remember what the old expression is. I think they said, you know, when when you say a joke, even if it's not funny, by the time you say it the third time, people will start to laugh. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you come up with a character, even if he's not really all that good, if by the time, you know, you, if you keep putting him out there, eventually he's going to develop an audience. I don't know. Maybe that's it, you know. And like I said, I don't believe there. I, I don't believe there's any character that's beyond redemption. So if there's anyone out there who can tell me the story, the issues that are going to make me love Gambit, let me know. I've got that Marvel Unlimited app. I'll go and I'll read them the next day. Yeah, same here. But I haven't found them yet. Same here. Found and and yet. there might be, you know, there might be some big Gambit fans out there. And I, I've I've made a point. I don't begrudge anybody their opinion. Somebody loves Absolutely. loves this character. You know, run with it, enjoy it. But if you can point us to what made you love this character then i'd be real interested in hearing or reading about it yeah 100 percent. so then you know there's a, the subplot in here with mystique and i think if you get the right issues i do think mystique is a fascinating character mm -hmm. uh you know just just the whole thing that you know she's been around so long and she's you know just uh you know, a lot of uh, subterfuge and, and just behind the scenes, and you could write her into any era, really. Uh, I think there's some interesting stuff going on there. Yeah. Uh, and and I think I think because of her shape changing, it also kind of leads to a, uh, a almost like a healing factor for her. So the fact that this mm -hmm. ended with her getting shot is pretty much meaningless. <laughs> True. It it is fun though, because that that was like the last three pages of the book, I think. But but that was definitely the pages that I found the most interesting. It's like, oh, I wonder what's happening with Mystique and Val Cooper. I'll find out ten issues from now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's weird. I agree with what you were saying earlier about the way Claremont wrote. It's it's almost like a subversion of the decompressed storytelling we have now. You know, in modern comics, it might take six or seven issues for anything to happen. 
in Claremont's books, it took six or seven issues to get to the next plot point, but that's because he had six or seven plots going on at the same time. So something was always happening in one of the stories. It's just, it might take a while to get to the one that you were looking at yesterday. Yeah, it's, I, I, I think it's for a periodical, I think it's a great storytelling method. Absolutely. But it does make it hard to read it like in a capsule like this. Yeah, well, you know, when we when we rate these, we try to do it in a capsule, too. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's not. But in this in this instance, I haven't read the issues leading up to this and I haven't read the issues coming from it. <laughs> so it's easy enough to, to take it for what it is here. Uh, the only place where I'm a little bit jaded is because, again, I've, I've just never been a big fan of the character of Gambit. But absolutely, uh, I could see where when this came out. And this is the only, you know, relationship you have with him. The only uh, information you have with him. I could see where he might be a little intriguing, and you want to know a little bit more about him, and at least have an open mind at this point. I don't know if they. I don't think you're necessarily hooked that. Oh, hey, this is a character I need to read more about. But yeah. I think if I was a regular reader of the X Men, I'd I'd say, okay, I want to see a little bit more about what's going on here, and who this guy is. I know. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed he, reading it, oh, reading it as a whole, I think it'll be more. Uh, it, there will be more to it than this. It's this is like you're getting that little taste, and you're not quite sure what the whole meal is going to be. Yeah, I notice he doesn't have the like in the in the cartoon when he would charge something and throw it. It was pretty much always the playing cards, mm -hmm. uh, which he doesn't do here. So that hasn't become a uh, character trope yet. Yeah, I very much wonder when that first playing card came out. Yeah, I guess it goes along with the whole Gambit. Name. I guess that's. I suppose that is. That's. There we go. We've got a connection finally. Something that makes sense as far as Gambit goes. Now, well, now, now let me ask you something. And again, since we're doing a New Orleans uh, episode sure. here, uh, you know, there was a Harris there, and we went in and we we did some time in there. But is there? Is, is gambling a big aspect of uh, the Big Easy? Honestly, it's it's not today. I think it has a reputation, you know, back in the the 1800s, early 1900s, uh, where where the city we had the the whole city had that reputation of just being like a wild place where anything could happen. But gambling was illegal uh, for for quite a long time. I'm trying to remember exactly when they uh, they legalized it and uh when harris opened in new Orleans, I, I feel like i have to look it up um because it was certainly when i was a kid harris was not there uh here we go it, it opened on october 30th 1999 which is almost 10 years after this book came out yes. so it's it's not like it's ingrained into the culture like jazz music or, or gumbo or something like that right um but i i, I suppose it's the that nostalgic, you know, the New Orleans of the, the, the grand old days and the riverboats and everything that you associate with the city going back 100 years. It's I, I feel like that's probably, if anywhere, where it comes from. Okay. Now, I was just wondering, one of the things we did while we were there was we did a riverboat tour. Mm -hmm. uh, and did they, did they ever, to your knowledge, did they ever have any, like, of those gambling riverboats? Those definitely exist. Um Again, I, I don't know when they started doing them, like in the modern era, though. Uh, I don't think they had them, like I said, when I was a kid, around the time when this book would have come out. Uh, 
I, I think that was something that, again, it was an old fashioned thing. They certainly had it back, long, you know, hundred years ago. Uh, the modern era, I'm not sure when it began. Yeah, there were there were a couple of things just, uh, you know, a couple of things that were on my must eat list when we were in New Orleans, just to keep <laughs> with with the New Orleans thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one was I said I you know I have to at some point have crawfish. Of course, uh, of course. I, I needed to have a po' boy. Mm-hmm. I needed to have uh, gumbo, and I needed to have uh, all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank. What's the uh, the pastry? Uh, the beignets. The beignets. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you got the checklist. Yeah, that's that's just about everything. So, and I did only I did manage to have every one of those. What what did I miss? The only thing the only thing that you left off as far as the iconic stuff would be king cake. But you came in March, Mardi Gras was over, so you were out of season for that. Um, and you know, if you could have got an A2 face somewhere, that might have that might have uh, enhanced your enjoyment a little bit. Yeah, I uh, I said you know I'm I'm too old to come for new for uh, Mardi Gras now. But then, oh, but, I, I don't, I don't blame you. I, 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 I love the city. I love the culture. I can, I don't have to go to Mardi Gras. We actually went to, to Arkansas for Mardi Gras this year. My family and I, we took, uh, took a little family vacation to get away from Mardi Gras this year. Yeah, we, uh, well, we said that to somebody when we were. Everybody that we spoke to was very nice, by the way. It was that was one of the the, the pluses there. Uh, but uh, we were talking to somebody and we said I said something about that and they were like, oh no, that's silly because it's it's always a party here <laughs> so you know that 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 is true that is true so I, I don't know how much we missed out by not being there for mardi gras but you know i'm okay with whatever we missed mardi gras honestly and this is speaking as somebody who grew up right outside of new orleans who as a teenager i was in the marching band and i marched in mardi gras parades you know it's a great thing to do a couple of times but it's not a lifestyle for me like it is for some people you know if i if if we can take a vacation and get away from the city for mardi gras one year i have no problem skipping it it's not like skipping christmas or something yeah i I totally could see that well you know being a lifelong new yorker uh i haven't been to a parade in manhattan in well over 20 years oh wow so you know it's it's something you should see in your lifetime but once you've seen it, you don't have to keep seeing it. I feel like that about San Diego Comic-Con. I, say, I always feel like just it, it's like Mecca. I feel like I have to go once before I die. But every time I hear people talk about it, it just sounds like it's just not as much fun as it used to be. Like Maybe I missed the window or something. I think that may be true. I mean, I've been to New York Comic-Con many times, and I'm not entirely sure why San Diego is better. Uh, and even New York Comic-Con, you know, the... The, the luster has come off of it somewhat for me over the years anyway. So, I, you know, I, I've said, uh, I've actually, at this point in my life, I've never been to California. Uh, and my wife and I were talking about going to California, and we said she, w- she would like to go to the San Diego Zoo. And I said, well, maybe we can try and work it around when Comic-Con is there, and we could do the zoo and Comic-Con. At least for however long we're in San Diego. So we'll see if that ever happens. <laughs> That'd be nice. Sounds like a good trip. Yeah, it, 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 I, th- I think it would be, but you know, it's 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 definitely not going to be in 2022. So we'll, we'll see where we go. <laughs> definitely, from that. yeah. That ship has definitely sailed. <laughs> so now I guess we could rate this book. Uh, the cover, I think the cover is pretty sharp. Actually, I like it. I think uh, 
you know, sometimes when they first introduce these characters, they, they look a little bit more edgy than, than when they soften them up over time. And I do think, like, Gambit on the cover looks kind of edgy. I do not like the co- the costume at all, as you mentioned, especially yeah. this, like, codpiece thing that he has. It just looks so silly and stupid. Uh, but just, you know, looking at his, his face with the headband and, and his the way his eyes are drawn and everything, he, he looks to be somebody to be reckoned with. Uh, yeah. And I kind of think that's cool. I think Storm looks pretty sharp. And, and, you know, it's like, what are they doing here, making their way through this, you know, I guess, swampland or whatever it is they're doing? It's intriguing. If I were collecting in 1990, I'm sure I, pro- I'm sure I would have picked this one up. Uh, so I'll give the cover, I'll give it a solid B. Uh, the interior art, I'm a little surprised that I'm not familiar with Michael Collins, even though he has a small body of work. I really kind of like his layouts here. Uh the inking and the coloring are moody and they make it a dark story, sometimes to the advantage of the story and sometimes to its detriment. The uh, the red slash purplish color uh, when they're showing Nanny and Orphan Maker, I think takes away from the story a little bit. It's just a little too stark. But when they're showing the fighting scenes and all and, and it's this, you know, shadows and uh, you know, just dark coloring. I think it looks pretty cool. So overall, I think the art, I'm going to say, I'm going to go B plus on the interior art. And the story kept me intrigued as I read it. Uh, it never really felt like it lagged. There was action going on throughout, but there was also character development. Uh, I, I, If they were presenting this as hey, look at Gambit, he's going to be our best character ever. I would probably take points off for that. <laughs> but since it feels like it was just introducing a character and, you know, you may like him, you may not, I, I don't feel like I have to take away for that particular aspect of it. Uh, you know, because that would be something I'd be taking away in hindsight anyway. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to say a B on the story also. I'm, I'm going to pretty much go Bs all around, the B plus on the artwork, and I'm going to give the book a B. Okay, you're a little higher all around than I am, uh, but the cover, oh, the the artwork itself is is fine, but I feel like it's I don't know maybe a little generic. Uh, it's two people standing out in the in uh, I guess it's supposed to be the swamp, um, and again that costume is showcased right there. This bright pink costume you know and and I'm not anti pink. I've got no problem with men wearing pink, but if you're supposed to be sneaking around and stuff. That's not going to help you do it. It just seems like a very, very impractical choice for me. So, yeah, I, I, that, and he's, of course he's got the trench coat because it is the 90s, and I feel like he should pull that trench coat closed, cover up a little bit more of that costume. Uh, I, the cover, I'm going to have to give it a C plus. Uh, interior artwork, I agree with you. It's, it's, it is sharp. I like the color scheme a lot. There's some very nice moody stuff going on there. Uh, and, and again, like you said, I'm not familiar with... Uh, with the artist at all, I guess he hasn't done all that much, but I kind of wish he had done more. I did enjoy the interior art. Uh, that one I gave a B. For the story, um, the biggest mark against the story for me is, like we said, reading it by itself, reading it in a vacuum. I feel like it's very difficult to figure out what's going on, you know? Storms trapped in a body of a child. There's a bunch of people wearing hound costumes. This gambit guy shows up out of nowhere, and we don't exactly know 
what he's doing there, how he got involved. Uh, and again, it's to Claremont's credit that he can juggle so many balls uh, in these stories like he was doing at the time. But it does make it hard to to read one issue on its own and say, okay, that was a solid, satisfying read. Um, they didn't really have the concept at the time, I think, but Claremont was very much you know, writing books that should have been binged. Uh, and I feel like it was more at this point than it was earlier in his run. Because I've done a reread of some of his earlier stuff, like the uh, the John Byrne era and uh, in that, that, that time period. And he still had all those balls in the air, but each individual episode felt like a more satisfying installment than this did. So I'm going to give the story overall, uh, give the story a C, and it's also going to be a C overall, because again, hard to follow the story, and if it wasn't for the fact that it's Gambit's first appearance, I don't think this is a book that people would really remember that anymore. You know, it's it's it'll be on that checklist, because it's going to be part of that X-Men run that you have to collect, but it would not be an issue that people reread or, or thought or talked about very much. It's it's just very, very middle of the road for me. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so that's our first venture down to New Orleans. And I think the second one is going to be a little bit more to your tastes. <laughs> it really is. I did like this one. Um, So when we decided to do New Orleans characters, you picked Gambit. I said, well... I'm going to grab the first appearance of a New Orleans character that I actually do like, uh, and that's Monica Rambeau, who you know, at the time was was Captain Marvel. I don't know if she's Photon or Spectrum now. I forget which name she's going by. But her first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 16 uh, from 1982, um, plotted and scripted by Roger Stern. I don't know why they couldn't just say written by you put the two together, I think it's the same thing. Mm. Um, and then to continuing the slightly esoteric credits, it's drawn by John Romita Jr. and John Romita Sr. Uh, it doesn't say pencil, doesn't say inked, it just says drawn by the father and son tag team. Uh, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Stan Goldberg, edited by Tom DeFalco, and proud wife and mom, Virginia Romita. <laughs> I, I love when they have the, the little funny little things in the credits there like that. So um, so it's Amazing Spider-Man Annual 16. We begin with Peter Parker walking through a bus terminal. He is there to pick up his friends, Harry and Liz Osborne. And then all of a sudden, his spider sense gets a tingle from this mysterious woman that's walking past him. He decides to follow her to see why his spider sense is going off. She walks out into New York City and immediately gets mugged by a couple of guys who I guess were waiting for somebody to come out of the bus terminal who looked like they'd be an easy mark. Uh, Peter goes to change into Spider-Man. While he's doing this, this mysterious woman takes out one of the attackers just immediately. The other guy runs away, runs straight into Spider-Man, and he knocks him out. And as Spidey approaches this mysterious woman, she blasts him with this just force bolt that sends him flying, knocks him out, she realizes she blasted Spider-Man. She's made a mistake, and she thinks to herself that she has to get her new powers under control or the world could be in danger. So she burns off the remains of her clothing, revealing this black-and-white costume, flies off in a bolt of lightning, and lands on top of the Empire State Building as the title card compels us to call her Captain Marvel. 
So we're there on the Empire State Building, and then we begin a flashback. This new Captain Marvel flashes back to the city of New Orleans, where Roger Stern wins my heart by immediately informing the reader that New Orleans is not just about swamps and Mardi Gras, but actually shows a little bit more of the city itself, taking us to the office of the Harbor Patrol. We see Lieutenant Monica Rambo, who is angry that she's been passed up for a promotion over some less qualified men, although she's told it's because of her unorthodox methods. Storming out of the boss's office, she runs into Professor Andre LeClaire, who tells him she, he was a friend of her grandfather during the war, and asks her to, to help him. He was recently employed by a South American dictator, Ernesto Ramirez, who was planning to use an invention of his intended to draw energy sources from other dimensions as a weapon. This, of course, is startling because it is so out of character for dictators to attempt to weaponize energy experiments. <laughs> So Leclerc manages to escape, um, but Ramirez has his old assistant continue his work on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. Leclerc has not been able to get anybody in the government to believe him, so he has gone to Monica in the hopes that her aforementioned unorthodox methods might get something done. So Monica and Leclerc take a boat out to check out this oil rig, and she, uh, she uses a little sex appeal. Uh, shows up in a bikini, convinces the guards to let her on board. And she is brought in to see Felipe Picaro, Lacar's old assistant. While he's whining and dining her, though, Lacar is found and captured. And we find out that he has used Lacar's invention to create a machine uh, that can draw energy from this other dimension, but it's powerful enough to wipe entire cities off the map. Monica tries to stop it by smashing the control panel, only to get blasted in an energy burst that hurls her all the way back to the wharf. Somehow, she... Uh, finds herself in a warehouse full of Mardi Gras costumes, because they have to work in a little bit of Mardi Gras because we are in New Orleans, and she puts together a uniform from just bits and pieces she finds from scraps, flies back to the rig, and there she finds uh, Picaro uh, attacking Leclerc, blaming him for the device's failure. It's opened up a hole between dimensions that's just getting bigger. Within a day, it's going to be big enough to engulf the entire planet, which absolutely sucks because that's where I keep my Legos. And if that wasn't bad enough, it's just going to keep getting bigger until our universe collides with the other one and they both get destroyed. Monica is sucked into the hole and somehow manages to close it and save Leclerc. And as they stagger away, he calls her Mon Capitan, which one of the stunned guards extrapolates to Capitan Est Maravilla, which I, I looked it up is Spanish for wonderful. So the wonderful captain is apparently what this Captain Marvel means. Uh, a couple of days later, we see Monica again. She's having trouble coming to grips with her, her transformation. She can turn into any form of electromagnet energy, pass through solid objects like a X-ray, move at the speed of light, shoot laser beams. He has taken the liberty of making her a costume out of unstable molecules, which I guess you can get like at Costco in the Marvel Universe. And she decides that her, her powers are starting to get out of control. She can't contain this energy. She decides she needs to go to New York. Flashback is over. We're back on the Empire State Building, and we see Monica, Captain Marvel, on top of the Empire State, having difficulty controlling her powers. Spider-Man has ma managed to track her down, but she vanishes in a flash of light. He notices that she had been looking through a telescope and hopes to glance through it to figure out what she was looking for, but first he has to borrow a quarter from a kid who makes him climb up a wall first to prove that he's really Spider-Man. Spidey looks through the telescope and sees what she's looking at and thinks, this can only be trouble. Flash to the Baxter building. Captain Marvel has arrived to look for Reed Richards for help, 
controlling her power, but unfortunately, Reed is on vacation. So the thing tells him that maybe tells her that maybe the Avengers can help. He goes to call the Avengers, but she can get there faster by just jumping into his radio, burning it out, and then popping out of the radio at Avengers Mansion, where she burns out Iron Man's armor as well. Um, Spider-Man manages to track her down to Avengers Mansion. He knocks her out as she is trying to get into a lab to contain herself before she could explode. Iron Man, who has managed to restart his armor at this point, uh, Iron Man and the Wasp hook her up to his armor so he can channel the excess power and blast it into the sky while Spider-Man shields them with webs. Just as the thing shows up to tell the Avengers what has happened, he finds a little reception with Spidey and the Avengers welcoming the new Captain Marvel. Spider-Man realizes that he forgot all about meeting his friends at the bus station way back on page one, so he runs back only to find that they had to catch a later bus after all, and they hope he hasn't been born waiting for them this whole time. So, a fun, a fun little story. Um, the reason I picked this is, like I said, it is a character that I do like. When I first started reading comics, um, Monica Rambeau was the Captain Marvel. She was in the Avengers. She was leader of the Avengers for a while. And, uh, and I honestly didn't even know at that point that there had been an earlier Captain Marvel. I was, this book came out in 1982, so I was like five years old. Shut Marvel. Up. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Marvel has, had already been dead for a while, so I, I did not become aware of that character until later. So this was the Captain Marvel for me. Um, and it was interesting when I went back and read this for the first time just a few years ago, because there's, I, I loved the fact that she was from New Orleans. I loved her power set. It was an unusual power set. I loved her costume. But it was a little strange reading this book because the whole thing about her having these unorthodox methods and the way she, you know, pulls out the bikini to, to get past the guards, that's an attitude that I don't think Stern really carried over to the character when he was writing her in The Avengers. She didn't... I don't remember her acting uh, that way. She was... Very, very much a straight-laced sort of superhero. I don't remember her having these off-the-wall techniques that would have gotten her in trouble like we saw in this issue. Overall, though, I mean, I, I really did enjoy seeing where she came from, and I think it worked as the introduction for this new character that they absolutely needed so that they could protect the trademark. I think it worked really well. See, that was what... I, I remember reading this when it came out, and... I guess even, you know, even back then I was a little jaded uh, to think, yeah, you know, this this is just trying to, to keep the trademark. That said, I think they did a pretty good job of coming up with something to do that. I hate that that's the motivation, but I, I do think, you know, I think they... they they, they did a good job, and I, I'm just trying to make sure I choose my words carefully here, because I think a lot of times in an effort to show diversity in comics, they get lazy. And they'll say, okay, uh, Peter Parker's not Spider-Man anymore. We're going to have this other person be Spider-Man, and, it, and it's a person of diverse cultural background. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's lazy. And I always say, well, you know what, let Peter Parker always be Spider-Man because Peter Parker has always been Spider-Man and he's Spider-Man in my mind and nothing's ever going to change that. And why don't you, if you want to come up with somebody of a diverse nature, come up with a new character to, for that person to be. There's no reason that we can't have originality as time goes on. It's not like every story has ever been told. And if it has, it was told a lot before, long before the comic book started to come out anyway. Indeed. Uh, so 
it, to me, it feels like a lack of creativity when they just kind of slap diversity onto an already existing comic. Now, I do have to temper that a little bit because I know by doing that, it's easier for them to find an audience for this diversity. And I have to appreciate that fact. But here's a case where it's, it's almost like a little bit of a mixed bag because we do have the, you know, the character copyright name issue going on. But I, I got the feeling with this that this was a character Stern had in mind, you know, without in, independent of the copyright issue. That this mm-hmm. was something he had come up with in his mind that he was going to run with. And then, you know, they, they combined it with the copyright issue and says, well, if you're going to do this, name her Captain Marvel. That's I think that's a yeah, that's the feeling. I think I you're have. absolutely right, because she's such a, a complete uh, story in and of herself. If it, if it had been just, hey, Stern, come up with a new Captain Marvel, it, it feels like the the thing that, that most people would have done and certainly the thing that people do today is they would have found some clear way to link her to the previous Captain Marvel. That's usually how it goes. So there's there's a, a bit in here where she's talking to the thing and she's like, ah, I didn't even know there was another Captain Marvel, which I, I, I think you're right. I think it's probably was a character that he already had in mind. And when that that came about that we uh, we got to renew that trademark, they probably did just apply the name to her. I think that's a great point. And I think in this instance, unlike Gambit, <laughs> I think we see aspects of her character where we say, oh, I like this. This is cool. Instead of being just told that it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that's that's a plus as far as I'm concerned. Now, she has been, you know, a in, in my mind, because I, you know, I, I did stop collecting for a while or whatever, but I, I saw her as, you know, more of a lower level superhero and that you know she wasn't somebody who would really have her own series or whatever but she's you know she's had some legs uh, for lack of a better word uh as a character it's 40 years later yeah not only is she still around but it looks like they're starting to work her into the marvel cinematic universe now oh yeah uh, i i was so happy when she showed up in wandavision my my wife could tell you when we watch when we watch these these comic book shows and comic book movies she reads she has read some comics but she doesn't have the well of knowledge that i have so certain times they'll, they'll say a certain name and i'll just get a big smile on my face and she's like okay who's that and, and this was definitely one of them yeah and when they introduced her in captain marvel uh, you know, she was introduced as a much younger character because the movie that movie takes place earlier. But ironically, ten sure... years after this book. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't sure if they were going to just have her as an Easter egg in there that you know the people in the know would say, "Oh, that's Captain Marvel too," or Captain Marvel also. Uh, <laughs> but or or if they were going to empower her. But clearly, in WandaVision, they are going to empower her and and i believe that they have announced that she's going to be in the captain marvel sequel which i think is just going to be called the marvels i think they changed the name of it too so it's you know i i I like the fact that this character has stayed around even if she hasn't been you know an a-lister uh and you know she's gone through the name changes and whatever because that also to me lends itself to the fact that she wasn't created to be captain marvel she was created and then they slapped the name on her in all likelihood uh, I find the costume to be just, you know, compelling. I think it looks kind of cool. Uh, 
I find the character to be cool. And as you said, you know, they show New Orleans to have a little bit more to it than just Swampland and Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. Of course, the way they make the streets look, I mean, it's it looks like they're paved with gold. <laughs> well, see, that would be colorist is uh, Stan Goldberg, so you can thank him for that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, overall, you know, it's I you know I got to think as as a Louisiana person, you you got to say yeah, you know, you take a little pride when they show it in a positive yeah. light like that. Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons, besides the fact that she was in the Avengers when I first started reading the book, I think that is one of the reasons I like the character because there's not a, t- even now, there's not a ton of characters in comics from New Orleans. And th- she might have been the first one that I remember actually seeing. And she never seems like a stereotype. The other, the no, other advantage she pulls over, over uh, Gambit. Absolutely. She is very much a, an individual character and, and, somebody who stands on her own without leaning on those trappings of this is where I came from. It's part of her, but it's not the only thing that you know about her. Uh, and that's, that's to me is one of the things that makes for a strong character. No, it's interesting looking at the artwork in this book where, you know, as I'm looking at it, I'm trying to pick out, okay, you know, what pages were done by John Romita Jr. Which pages were done by John Romita Sr. Cause I, at first I had thought, it was penciled by Junior and inked by Senior. But I'm more inclined to say that there are pages here that look to be more likely that came from one than the other and yeah. other ones that are the other way around. Uh, but I'm, I'm having a tough time distinguishing them totally. But I do find it interesting the way, uh, like I can see a different look to certain pages, but I also feel like there's a consistency at the same time, which is obviously a, uh, you know, it's a little oxymoronic, uh, but <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it, it, I, I, I just, I appreciate the artwork and John Romita senior has always been one of my favorite artists. And we've yeah. talked recently, uh, in fact, very recently about John Romita junior, uh, how his earlier work, which this would qualify as, is more appealing to me and to some of the other people who've been on the show uh, than his later, more stylized work. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I, I think his earlier era, it, he's, his work back then did look a lot more like his father's style uh, before he kind of branched off and evolved into his own thing. And and the art he does today, I like it for certain characters. Like, I like his Spider-Man, his Daredevil. I think those characters work well. What I don't like is when he gets on to, like, the big cape guys. I don't care for his Superman. I didn't care for his Thor. Hmm. You know, I feel like his style works better on the, for lack of a better term, the street-level characters than he does for the cosmic stuff. Along the same lines, I was not entirely enamored with his Avengers run. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. But I, I think probably for the same reasons, even though I hadn't put that together, that that he's he's he fits better for the street level. But at least with his current style, in in this style that he drew yeah, that he had here, I think he would have been fine drawing those characters. Yeah. And this, I, I agree. Yeah, and looking at the book, like you said, it's impossible for me to to look at any individual page and say, well, senior penciled this and junior inked it, or vice versa. It's it, it it is, I think cohesive is the word you use. I think that I didn't use it, but that's a good word. Oh no, <laughs> you use, I, I forget which word it was. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, but yeah, I, I, I 
I agree with that. There's certain pages. If you go to, you know, they're not numbered. Uh, the 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 page where she's got the bikini on. Uh, the, the next one after that. She's climbing into the oil rig. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I'm looking. The, the next one when she's uh, talking to uh, whatever the guy is over there, and she's sitting having a bottle of champagne with him. Uh, that looks to be senior to me, especially the way he drew the face at the bottom right panel. Oh, where he's grabbed him by the, the collar? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah I, I see that. That looks like a senior panel. I and agree. it looks very similar to me uh, to what Senior was doing in the Spider-Man uh, newspaper strip at that time. So that's, that's, that's yeah. what le leads me to believe that's him. Uh, then if you go to the next page, I can't tell who that is. That might be Junior. Yeah, that panel, the, the the next page, right above the panel where she actually smashes the uh, the device, you've got her face kind of being lit up by it. To me, I feel like that could be a junior panel. Yes. That feels more like a junior panel right I there. I agree. I think you're right. Because that does not look like what I expect from Senior. Although I would imagine they both have fingerprints on every page. I, I think it would be fascinating to do like an artist edition of this issue to look at the original pencils, original inks and, and kind of play that game. Who did what? Yeah, it really would. It would, it would be a lot of fun. And, you know, over the years doing the show, we've come across books where, you know, somebody was credited as an inker. Uh, and then, you know, when we dig a little deeper, we find out that that person didn't do it alone, that there were, you know, multiple hands working in the book. And, you know, we're able, then we start being able to distinguish, well, this page looks different from this page. And, you know, it's, it's fun to do that when you're paying that close attention. And this, mm -hmm. this book is one where it definitely could lend itself to that, to be sitting here and kind of studying the panels a little bit. And maybe if you can do it on your iPad or, or any, you know, any digital format where you can kind of expand it and look at it more closely, I think you might be able to to pick out some stylistic things that, that go to one and not the other. Uh, and that's, that's kind of cool to do that, that can make for a lot of fun. Absolutely. And, uh, just to kind of finalize my thoughts a little bit, I, this book clearly is okay. We want to introduce Captain Marvel. It's almost like Spider-Man's a guest star in his own book. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, but that's okay. I kind of felt like I enjoyed reading it and it makes it okay. And Spider-Man was, and probably still is, the guy who you want to be tagging these new characters along with so that people will see them the same way Superman has always been the, the one in, in DC Comics. I think there was a thing in DC Comics where for a while, you know, every every series had to have Superman in it within like the first 10 issues or something. Yeah. And, and you know, Spider-Man was, you know, what... For better or for worse, you know, they may have said the Fantastic Four was their flagship title, but Spider-Man has long been the flagship title of Marvel. I'll, I'll never forget John Byrne when he did She-Hulk even had a joke about that. It's my third issue. It's time for the obligatory guest star. And she pulls back the curtain and there's Spider-Man waving at you on the cover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, even though he, you know, as I said, it almost feels like he's the guest star in Captain Marvel's book here. But he is certainly, you know, well, there's all these other heroes in there. Spider-Man is clearly front and center of the, you know, in quotations, guest stars in this book. Uh, so, you know, it's it's all well and good with me. And I read it in 1982. I enjoyed it then. I don't know if I've read it in between until 
I picked it up to do this today, and I enjoyed reading it today. I'm glad I could bring it back to you, sir. <laughs> so you want to you want right. to rate this? So yeah, let's do that. So the cover, first of all, by the the Ramitas. Um, I really like this cover. It sticks with you. You've got this this bold, sparkling figure in the center, and it's it's the outline just kind of filled with a Kirby crackle because they don't want to actually see the costume, I guess, till you get into the book. Uh, the, but you can see the outline, and you can see, like, she's got those arm flaps on this costume, which gives uh, the costume a very, very different look than, than most other superheroes, so it helps her to stand out. You've got Spider-Man and the Avengers and, and the Thing kind of all in the background, blanching back as, you know, what is this that's attacking? It almost looks like it's the bad guy, even though it says right there, the new Captain Marvel which I don't think even in 1982 anybody would have thought, oh, is the new Captain Marvel a bad guy? Uh, but it does have it's a it's an image that I think you you will remember, and uh, I really like it. So the cover I give a B plus. Uh, interior art again we we've already talked about this quite a bit. It's it's very good. It's very clean 80s style art that I enjoy quite a bit. It would be a lot of fun to to break it down page by page and try to figure out who did what, but even without the, the game, I love the, the way the, these characters looked. I especially like the way the Ramitas do uh, Ben Grimm, who is my favorite Marvel character. They do a great Ben Grimm. Uh, so the interior art, I'm, I'm giving it an A. Story. This is an annual. It's extra size. So we basically get like a full issue length flashback in the middle of a full issue of a woman walking around with the power to potentially destroy the world, and she's got to get it under control. So there's a lot of like there, um, a lot to like there. The origin, you know, I, I like I said, I was a little surprised at the characterization because it didn't exactly match the character she was in Avengers later, but but that's okay. I mean, these, these early stages, very often these characters and the writers are still trying to figure out who they are. So I can I can chalk it up to that. It, just in terms of the plot, it's a very classic sort of an origin. The old energy experiment thing that they used to happen in comics all the time sets her up very well. As far as the wraparound sequence goes, the non-flashback, that one doesn't work quite as well for me. I like the sillier stuff, like Spider-Man having to perform like a trained monkey to get the kid to give him a quarter. I mean, this is this is like such a Spider-Man problem to have. <laughs> I've got to save the world, but first got to do tricks for this kid so I can get a quarter and figure out where I'm supposed to go. Spider-Man is the only character that this could happen to, you know? The ending, though, feels like it comes a little too easily. After all this build-up, um, is, is Iron Man going to survive the energy transfer? Peter flagellates himself a little bit because he feels like it's all his fault. But, I mean, come on, did anybody really think Iron Man was going to die in a guest appearance in a Spider-Man annual, even in the 80s? I, I just don't think that. There's a little bit of false stakes there. Um, that didn't quite pay off for me. And I agree with what you're saying about it feels like it's it's almost like Spider-Man's guest starring. Like if I'm if I'm, you know, eight or nine years old and I'm going to spend a whole whopping dollar on an annual and it's the Spider-Man annual and he's only on about a third of the pages. That probably would have bothered me. It doesn't bother me now, but I can definitely see how it would have bothered me at the time. Uh, so overall, story wise, uh, I'm going to give it a B. And uh, overall, for the entire book, again, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for this specific issue because I only read it for the first time a few years ago. But I do have a lot of nostalgia for the character for Monica Rambeau. I really do enjoy the, the origin. I really do like the artwork. So overall, I'm giving the book uh, a B+. Okay. 
So now the cover, I do think it's eye-catching and I do think it's memorable. I think it would have benefited more instead of having Captain Marvel bathed in light and having the heroes appear to be in total darkness. I feel like it would have been more true to what we were getting from the character's power set and from the circumstances. And I think it would have made the cover look sharper if instead of having that black background, if you had a white background and you had these characters drawn as if they were bathed in white light with, you know, very, very minimal color. I think that would even make it sharper and more eye-catching. So it's a, it's a minor complaint, but I think it would have been well served if they had done that. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to say a solid B on the cover. I think it's, it's good. It's catchy. And I just think it, you know, it could have been even more iconic if they had done it a little differently. I also probably would have added just a touch more detail to Captain Marvel. Not a lot, but just a tiny bit more. Um, the interior art, I'm an easy mark for John Romita Sr. <laughs> and when John Romita Jr. is, you know, doing his artwork in the style of his father, um, I'm on board for that just as much. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's not his absolute best work, but it's really good. So I'm going to say an A minus. It's still an A, but it's not quite, you know, the, the, stuff that that made me bow at the altar of uh, John Romita Sr., you know, as I was reading the back issues of Spider-Man as, as a uh, preteen. Uh, and this story, the big savings grace to this, as far as I'm concerned, is that I would go into it, I did go into it, and I continued to think that way until I really thought it out, thinking, okay, this is a story to keep the patent. Uh, and then, you know, coming up with the ultimate thought process that this is a character that was going to exist no matter what the name was going to be and that they just slapped that name on for that purpose. Uh, and the name isn't necessarily bothersome to the character. Um, I'm willing to overcome all that bias that I walked in with. Uh, and I find I, I find it interesting, as you said, that basically there's a full length story in the middle. And I'm wondering now. Based on you saying that, if Stern kind of had this all planned out as a story and then had to bookend it with the Spider-Man aspects of it. Oh, wow. I, that did not occur to me. But, yeah, that absolutely could be which, the case. Which could also go to plotted and scripted. Ah. You know, maybe hmm. maybe there's maybe he plot he plotted the the first story or he scripted the, the story that's inside. And then he just kind of gave, uh, you know, the Romita's what to do outside just gave them kind of a plot and let them run wild with it i don't know it, it's it's an interesting thought process though that when you start thinking about the uh you know the, the process to to come up with this uh but i found it to be a, an enjoyable read and and the character was compelling uh and uh i would say you know solid b on the story and i'm gonna give the book overall an a minus all right fair very fair uh, I'm glad you brought this one. This this was kind of cool to revisit. Um, so I just want to, you know, I want to thank you for making time in your schedule. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, I am very glad to do it. I miss, I do miss doing this. It's uh, it's one of those things. Once my son's a little older, I, I hope to 
be able to fire the microphone up again and start doing it on a more regular basis. But uh, for now, it's it's nice to get to sit in. Well, when you when you were doing it regular regularly, it's and it's been a while, so I'm, I, I was a regular listener of yours. Uh, but were you weekly or something else? I don't remember. We we were mostly weekly. <laughs> it's it's like I think a lot of podcasts you, you do have start to drift after a while. People get busy it gets harder to find times to uh, to record uh, but it, we were weekly for the the bulk of our run okay well uh yeah we, I mean, we we remain weekly uh as despite despite the number of years i've been doing this already uh it's, it's sometimes it's challenging and sometimes it's a hell of a lot of fun so the second yeah. part makes what makes the first part worthwhile uh yeah, absolutely but you know my, my thought process is i i I'm glad we managed to uh, reconnect and talk, and I'd love to do it again. And uh, absolutely, you know, I, you, obviously you're not up for a weekly podcast, and I totally get that. And nor am I inviting you for a weekly podcast. <laughs> but but I'm thinking, you know, in a couple of months, if you start saying, "Hey, eh, I got the itch again, and I got a little free time," reach out to me. Let me know. We'll we'll do this again. I'd love to. You know, you know, I said I'm a teacher. Summer is coming up. I will have a little more time, so maybe we can work something out. Sounds good to me. All right. All right. So thanks for coming on again. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for everybody for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks and we'll see you next week.